G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. And uh, maybe or maybe not one of those typical type conversations you might think when we're talking about creation and evolution. Well, you might have a nagging question that you've always wanted to ask. You will be welcome to call in, although we're going to try and keep our conversation a little centred around one of the most important issues around this creation-evolution debate. We're returning to an important topic today about how we assess the age of the earth and of rocks and of fossils. Lots of people think that radioactive dating disproves the Bible. Mostly, radioactive dating methods show the earth is very old, and so are the rocks and the fossil remains of dinosaurs. So how does the Christian make sense of an historic Genesis account of creation that indicates that the age of the earth is young and not millions or billions of years old? What about Noah's flood in the Bible book of Genesis? Does it shed light on the age of the earth? Well, if you believe evolutionary scientists, it's easy to brush aside the concept of God as creator. But what if scientific dating is not a way of measuring, but a way of thinking? So how do we make sense of radioactive dating and what are the assumptions that evolutionary scientists are not telling you and I about? Well, our special guest through this coming hour is Dr. Taz Walker. He's a researcher, writer and speaker with Creation Ministries International. He holds a doctorate in mechanical engineering, having worked in the mining and electricity industries. He's also qualified in earth science and has published resources about geology and the Bible. Taz Walker, a special welcome back to 2020. Oh, it's great to be here with you, Neil. Very good. It's nice to catch up with you after all this time. And uh, yeah, I like your introduction there. It has been a little while, and we're back onto one of your favourite topics here. And uh, I guess for those not necessarily geologically minded, uh, scientifically minded, uh, we'll try and uh, sort of you know tiptoe our way through some things. But uh, don't be afraid, Taz, to give us the reality of how things look. Look, as a PhD mechanical engineer, you decided to go back to university and study geology. Uh, Give us an insight here, uh, because I know people were saying, why are you going back to study geology when you're already so well qualified? Yeah, that's right. And I thought that engineering was sort of a a more lucrative profession than being a geologist and uh, much easier working in an office and that sort of thing. So people were very surprised that I went back to study geology. But it was it was motivated by uh, really understanding the Bible and the, the, the big history. 
You've got the the history that's in our culture today, which uh, you hear from every angle, every which way, that the Earth is millions of years old and it evolved uh, by itself, just by natural processes over slow and gradual, you know, lo- e- eons of time. So that's the what's in our culture, and there's lots of videos and uh, information about that. People have to study it at school and that sort of thing. And, and as opposed to that is the what the Bible reveals is that in fact this earth was created that God created it he didn't he did it not that long ago well it is a long time but compared with the billions of years uh, it's not that long it was about six thousand years ago and uh, the Bible reveals that to us and that explains you know who we are where we came from and why we're here it gives us purpose in life so uh, I could see that that was a big issue in our culture, and so that's why I went back and studied geology, because it's geology that holds the evolutionary, the secular uh, history. That no, It's not really history, but it's a story. It's the story that's told in our culture today. It, that's, it comes out of geology. So, Taz, there you were, back at university. Uh, you already had a PhD, and no doubt the geology professors uh, uh, had uh, significant qualifications too. But when you began to uh, look at some of the issues around uh, history and uh, geological formations you discovered that there was some things in the biblical flood account that could explain complex questions that your professors could not. Give us a little insight here. Take us back into the classroom. Uh, What was going on at those times? Well, it's very interesting. I I basically... I was considered to be an undergraduate and I was, you know, like nobody gave me any special status or anything like that because I had a PhD in in engineering. And so I studied with other people and I was uh, nervous. I didn't want to mess anything up or make a fool of myself amongst these others. But uh, I got on well with the the, uh, lecturers and the professors and, and those people. Uh, but they really didn't want to discuss it. They, they, it was something that were, they were teaching it. This is what's factual. And if you've got a different idea, that's right. You're learning from us. We're not learning from you. That was a sort of an attitude. But occasionally I would, in, in the assignments that I did, occasionally I would add some, a little bit of an extra information. I'd say not uh, not for assessment. Uh, and I would explain it from a biblical point of view. And I never had any problems with anybody. I, uh, and often they would say, thank you very much, we appreciate that, but you know, evolution is so compelling. I just, you know, I just can't accept uh, what your position you've got there. So uh, I know that in other institutions, in other places in Australia and in the world, if people uh, make their uh, belief, what they believe known, they can often be uh, discriminated and against and uh, uh, run into all sorts of problems. But I didn't have anything like that. The people that I dealt with were quite, you know, you know, quite very friendly, got on well with them, but they usually didn't want to talk about the issue. So there's an academic peer pressure that comes from the professors, from the lecturers, and the class falls into line. Uh, just to take you back, you mentioned uh, that without this biblical view, uh, you really are struggling to find meaning and purpose uh, because meaning and purpose don't come with an evolutionary model. So somehow or other, you can't really leave God out of the equation when you're thinking about origins. 
thoughts here from you around you know meaning and purpose and what this really means uh, if you're grappling with you know creation and uh, evolution those things yes uh that's right that's where it comes from it comes from uh from the fact that god made us understanding where we come from and a lot of people have that they have in their lives a desire to find their roots, to find where they came from, to understand their heritage, what their connection is in the past. And so uh, that's a part of people trying to find their meaning and, and from their meaning to understand their purpose and what life's about. And so without without knowing that, life can be very unsettling. And um, so th- that's, that's really what happens in that line. And I've heard stories of people. There's a guy that I met in Canberra, a young fellow, who grew up in a church but decided at about uh, 14, just after he'd been confirmed, he decided that he was uh, didn't, didn't believe this stuff anymore. He'd watched a lot of science movies and science documentaries and that, and he just accepted evolution and millions of years. And he went and studied music at the conservatorium, and he said that life became very depressing, very bleak, very... You know, it was there was no joy in his life, and uh, and there's a word for that. It, it, it's um, that's uh, that, that's connected with it's a experience when people take God out of the out of the picture, they get this feeling of blackness and sadness, and uh, so that's why it's incredibly important to sort of understand. Well, the Bible reveals our true history, what really happened. And uh, without that revelation, we wouldn't have a clue as to where things came from. And so it uh, really make, changes a whole lot of things. So while you're back at university, uh, you already have a PhD in mechanical engineering and uh, you're in the geology laboratories and you have opportunity to experiment with radioactive dating techniques. Because if we're going to be talking about radioactive dating today, uh, this is good, I guess, to get a little bit of a grip on what all that is all about. Uh, you were in there in those laboratories and you got the opportunity to test radioactive methods and understand the maths and the science. Yes, that's right. And it's... Uh Testing, I don't know if it's really testing. I mean, using would be a way of, of doing it. You can, using the methods and, and understanding uh, what happens, how these uh, geologists, how these scientists, what, how they treat the information. And that's really the big thing that, that's around a lot of think that, you know, you just get a, a, a rock, you put it in a machine, and out comes the age. Well, to a certain extent, that's true, but out comes a number. A number will come out of this machine. And then the geologists have to decide, well, what's this number mean? And that's really the art of radioactive dating. And the way it's all set up, the methods and the processes and the thinking that's used by the people that use it, it, it's arranged in such a way that it cannot be falsified. It's just it's just a, a a belief system. It's just believed that it's true. It's believed that it's accurate. And if the numbers that come out don't make sense, then there must be something wrong with our understanding of what's going on. But there certainly can't be anything wrong with the radioactive dating. So that's that's the basic philosophy. And and we sat around in class 
you know, when we did the subject of radioactive dating, of dating methods, uh, and we were given numbers uh, and we're sitting around in a group and our, our role was to explain what these numbers meant. So I was there with the other students. The other students would have been in their late, late uh, teens, 20 sort of an age. And, you know, they'd just come up with all these different stories about what uh, what these numbers could mean. And we wouldn't argue about it. We'd have discussions and disagreements about it. But basically, and that really illustrates how it works, is that the geologists have to come up with an explanation to make sense of the numbers. Now, you don't do that with anything else that you measure. You know, if you're measuring lengths, if you're measuring concentrations of atoms, if you're measuring, you know, the blood level, the sugar level and those sorts of things, it gives you a number and you know that's the right number. But uh, that's what it is. But with radioactive dating, it could mean this or it could mean that. And I can give you some examples of that. But it's very interesting that this is such a, um, how would you put it? Some people would call it a stronghold. It's got such a grip on people's minds that it must be true that the people just accept it. And yet it doesn't take much thinking. It, it's really quite simple to understand the basic problem with it and uh, how it's actually impossible to measure the age of something using measurements which are simply present. It's not just uh, inaccurate. It's not just, uh, you know, a slight little, uh, little discrepancy or something. It's actually impossible. And uh, you can get any age you like depending on the way you approach it. And that's what I learned in my time with uh, dealing with radioactive dating so, uh, when I did, did my studies. So it's impossible uh, to actually come up with an accurate age of uh, rocks. Um, it's all an estimate. And uh, the assumptions that you make in there give the outcome uh, as to what you're anticipating. Just uh, quickly here... Um, there's different ways of dating. Uh, we're talking about radioactive dating. There's another sort of dating called carbon-14 dating. There's probably a whole host of different dating methods. Uh, some of them are used for some things and some for others. Uh, the carbon-14 one, is that, that, that's, uh, how, do, how do you date the, the dinosaur fossils and things like that? Last time we were talking, we were talking about Cooper the dinosaur, an Australian dinosaur and, uh, and Cooper's age. How do they date dinosaur bones and things like that? It's a different, different method? Um, related, you know, when you think talking about the, the whole of the earth, you know, the rocks of the continent and then in other continents and on the seafloor, and you look, you're looking at all this thing and, it's, and you go back, you know, there's a lot of rocks. It's a very complicated and so the geologists have, you know, have been done a great job in working out how these rocks are related to one another and they've used various assumptions. And then they've sort of come up with a scheme to sort of put ages on the different rocks. You know, like they've got a, it's like a bookcase or a filing cabinet where you've got different, different, different rocks at different ages and they put these rocks in the filing cabinet where they think the ages are. But uh, so they, they've got, they've, they put, uh, they put dates on the various rocks that are in the earth, in the earth, like the Jurassic rocks, or the Cambrian rocks, or the Ordovician rocks. They put that, they put dates on them, and that's decided by a committee, because they get information from all over the world, 
and as to where these rocks are and what fossils are in them. And then they come up with some sort of a, uh, it's like a vote discussion as to what age they're going to give them. And so they publish a table. Anybody can look it up. It's called the International Commission on Stratigraphy. And you can download a table from here. It's just on one A4 sheet. And it's coloured. It's nice and pretty. And you can look up different, the different, uh, what these different uh, periods or, or, or systems are, you know, the Jurassic and that. You can look at the ages of them. But the thing is, this table keeps changing. Every year, they they. they uh, they modify it and change it, and so and so, uh, and so, but it's decided by this committee, and so that's how you find somebody finds a dinosaur fossil in Queensland, like you know uh, this uh, this Cooper, you know fossil, uh, Cooperensis, wasn't it? That uh, yep. Cooper the dinosaur. Yep. So they they go and they find it in the rocks. They found it in Eramanga, and so the the area of Eramanga that's basically. I, I'm not 100% sure just now where it is, but it might be the Winton Formation. The geologists have given it a name. And so anything that's found in the Winton Formation, it's already on the chart and it's already got an age. So you don't have to do any radioactive dating on it. You just say, oh, it's in the Winton Formation. Therefore, it's uh, 100 million years old. And so that's how they, they date things, by the rocks that they find them in. But then, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff goes you know this this particular international commission on stratigraphy uh, and so i've actually we've uh, in creation ministries have taken this uh, geological column uh, that's used and it's widely used all over the world and almost anything that's found anywhere is put on this chart uh, you know you can find on the chart where it belongs and so we've actually done a transformation so that if you can find out where it is on the chart, you know, so it's Jurassic. Oh, there's a Jurassic on the chart. And you can see, oh, that says the floodwaters were rising. So it's got a, it, it just does a little transformation to transform these millions of years into biblical history. You know, as the floodwaters were rising, as the floodwaters are falling, and this is uh, post-flood, and this was during the Ice Age, that sort of thing. And so... We, the geologists do a great job in sort of working out what's there, documenting what's there, putting it on maps and in reports. Uh, but it's all within this million-year age, and radioactive dating is the key in that, but it's all within this millions of years age. But uh, we can transform it. We can, And you find that the information, once you look, sort of look at it through these biblical eyes, biblical king. It makes a lot of sense. You can see evidence of catastrophe. You can see evidence of eruptions, great erosion, and and uh, uplift, and uh, and all sorts of things. And you can just tie it into um, to the biblical flood. And I find it very exciting to do that. And people are always writing to me and saying, "Well, one just recently says I, I live in the Black Hills area of South Dakota." And uh, I, and he starts talking about stuff there, and and I can just—it's not hard. I can just look up information about the uh, Black Hills area, and and you can transform it to say, well, this, this this happened really early in the flood, just after the breaking up of the fountains of the Great Deep, and you can and you can do this transformation. And, and people are so happy to sort of be able to understand where things fit together. And uh, Christians understanding the strength 
of the Genesis history. And uh, interesting, isn't it, when you say the age of the earth, uh, rocks and fossils, uh, just determined by a committee. Taz, uh, just quickly, um, this is one of the biggest blockages to belief when you can't feel comfortable to understand the Genesis history uh, one of the biggest blockages, this radioactive dating. Uh, how do you find that? I guess that's something that comes up in most of the presentations you do. It does come up in presentations, and we get lots of questions about it. Uh, I think about the age of the Earth, radioactive dating, than almost anything else. We've written lots of articles on radioactive dating and how it works, simple articles, and we've gone into the different methods and all things like that. But it doesn't seem to make much difference that people still ask the same questions or there'll be a new method which will come out and that people will then be sort of think, oh, this this uh, maybe not, uh, you know, uh, destroys uh, biblical history and, and, uh, and causes a problem. And so we have to deal with it over and over again. So, um, in fact, even people that have been following creation for years, getting Creation magazine, people that have written articles for us, we've had pe- people come to us and say, you know, ask these questions, and it's con- obviously worrying them, and so that's why it, uh, it's an important issue. Okay, taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Lawrence, who is in Perth, WA. Hey, Lawrence, welcome along. Oh, thank you for this morning's uh, interview and so on. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if evolutionary scientists have confirmation bias. And I think the example is students who go into science studies who are steered in the direction of their supervising professors. And as they study for master's or PhD qualifications, they'll only be given credits if their theses relate to their supervisor's biases. Okay, uh, interesting one there. Uh, Taz, uh, thoughts on confirmation bias and uh, writing according to your uh, professor, your lecturer's uh, bias in their uh, delivery of the detail. Uh, thoughts here for Lawrence? Yes, uh, yes that, that happens. And uh, I think Lawrence is talking about what he's talking about is sort of on the smaller level, like the, the uh, lecturer or the supervisor might be talking about a particular thing in his area, but uh, which is fine. And uh, but what we're talking about here is is sort of bigger than just confirmation bias, which it is. We're talking about a worldview. It's it's a, it's a belief system about how everything works. And this underlying worldview is you could call it naturalism. Uh, the idea that everything happened by naturalistic processes, there is no supernatural, there is no God, or even if there is, he's not, never done anything. God is actually a product of human th- thinking, he, he, he's not real. So that's the worldview, and the attempt is to explain everything by the worldview. And the impression that you get is that, oh, it's that easy. Now that we, uh, have, we've got all this information about science, it's really easy to explain it. And that's where it's a little bit um, disingenuous, uh, is that it's, there's so many problems with the theory. It's un- they make it unfalsifiable. And so that's the worldview that's driving it. It's naturalism compared with the worldview that the Bible, there's a real God who revealed himself in the Bible. And so that's where we start. Uh, from, and that's the, the basis of our worldview. Uh, Lawrence, anything further to add very quickly? 
Oh, no, that's good. Thanks very much for the answer. Great. Lawrence, thank you for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Let's take another call. Philip is in Albany in WA. Hey, Philip, welcome. Good morning. Philip, what are your thoughts? Um, Look, I'm calling from Albany, WA, and uh, we're putting together a little fossil and geological display. Now, the interesting thing about that is, even though we've only got about two or three dozen examples in it, they all clearly show um, that, uh, for example, the forest uh, leaves were still alive, fully hydrated. You can see all the veins. And uh, they were instantly buried by the ocean under limestone, marine fossils. Um, And... uh, Sedimentary rock. Um, we've got examples um, <clears throat> uh, like uh, all the parallel layers, uh, sandstone, etc. And there's never any turbidity between the layers. Um, there's no tree roots. There's no wormholes. Um, there's no uh, marine creatures burrowing through it. So these examples, when you can see them and touch them and contemplate them with your own mind, they very clearly show rapid cataclysm and uh, in some instances the fossilised jellyfish are two billion years uh, out of place, meaning the imagined age of planet Earth and the particular rocks um, are just total Total fabrication, Philip, according uh, to their own. Only a, only a couple of minutes out from news. Need a quick response here from uh, Taz. Uh, thoughts here around what Philip is sharing? Well, what, you, what you're saying sounds really, really interesting, and those fossils do show everything that you say. Uh, and uh, evolution's geared in such a way that uh, I used to think about out-of-place fossils, but they would just make up a new story if it. They will just make up a new story, and they won't, it won't admit that it's out of place. So yes, it's uh, what you say is the evidence does point to cataclysm, to rapid burial, rapid preservation, and uh, it's very, very good. Taz, on this radioactive dating, what is it that we need to know uh, to be able to put things into perspective? Uh, hello again, Neil. Uh, yeah, what we need to know. Basically, we measure the times of things all the, to- all the time. When you put something in the oven, you measure how long it's in the oven. When there's a, a race with a, a swimming race, you measure how long it takes for somebody to swim 1,500 metres. We're measuring the times of things all the time. And um, we all know that if no matter how accurate it is, no matter how you know how precise it is, and all the bells and whistles on it, and that's a, a small point of a second. If you you can only know the time if you measure if you looked at the watch at the beginning, and then you looked at it at the end. If you didn't look at it at the beginning, but you're only looking at it in the present now, you cannot know how long it was. You can only guess. And so, if you are wondering how long your pie was in the oven and you think, oh, I can't remember what time I put it in. You're sort of guessing. And the same with a race, a a swimming race, 1,500 metres. If you look at your watch when the guy touches at the end of the swimming pool, but if you did not look at the watch and note the time when he started, you don't know how long he's been going. And that's, that's, it's a very simple concept. We experience it all the time. And that's the concept with regard to radioactive dating is that we can measure very accurately 
the uh, isotopes and elements uh, that are in a mineral at the present incredibly accurately and that's really what throws people off the trial i think it's it's a, a, you know it's a, absolutely true but we don't know what it was what those measurements were when the rock formed and uh, so i always say you know that we realize that there there is no instrument that can measure age it does not exist and uh, so how do they get an age well, before you can calculate an age, you need to make assumptions. You have to guess what was the value of that particular isotope when the rock formed. And, uh, and the thing is, you can get any age you like, depending on the assumptions that you make. And geologists know that. And so that's the basic rules. And the other thing that's really important to understand is that geologists don't accept the numbers either unless it agrees with what they think it should be. So if they don't believe it, if they won't accept it, I don't accept it either because it doesn't agree, you know, with, uh, with, with what uh, my worldview and the under and understanding of how old the world really is. So that's, in a nutshell, I think hopefully that's simple enough to be able to understand that. Okay, right, there's lots in all of that and uh, listeners might like to contribute. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Let's take another call. Georgina is in Crestmead in Queensland. Hey, Georgina, welcome along. Lots in all of that. and uh, uh, Georgina, you might like to turn your radio down in the background. Hello? Georgina, turn your radio down, then, uh, then you can ask your question. Hey, Georgina, welcome along. Georgina, are you with us? Just need to yes. yes? yes I'm with okay, <laughs> okay. You've got your radio turns down now. What's uh, what are your thoughts? Oh, am I on the air? Yes. Oh, that just... was quick. Um, I was just thinking. We take time from a Genesis when Noah, the world was flooded, don't we? And and we base the Bible on that how long the earth's been and I was thinking well it could have been longer because when he's Noah sent the dove out he brought back an olive leaf so the you know the fauna and that hadn't been destroyed so it could be a lot longer does that make sense well let's get a thought or two Taz uh, your thoughts here for Georgina Yes, thank you. Yes, there's a very, it's a very interesting uh, account in Genesis of the flood. When Noah went into the ark, when the flood started, how long the water took to go up, and then how long it took to come, come down. It lasted about a year from beginning to end. And on the way through, as the waters was coming down, quite some time after they'd started to come down, that's when Noah uh, sent that particular dove out, and it came back with a leaf in its mouth. And so... I think the Bible says so Noah knew that the water had gone down and uh, so or, or was going down. And so that's understandable that, I mean, it could have grown from, you know, pieces of the tree. It was an olive tree that had uh, landed on the surface of the particular area where they were and it started to sprout up, you know, like the things, the cuttings and that do sprout up. So uh, it all fits in with the, the uh, timeline in of the flood. 
And before the flood, of course, uh, it's about 1,700 years going back to when Adam and Eve were created and the world was created. So that's how we know it's about uh, 4,000 years since creation to now and about uh, 6,000 years and 4,500 years from the flood to now. Georgina, does that that answer your question? Yeah, I was just thinking that... um, I was thinking of the olive leaf, and I'm thinking, well, maybe it is billions of years. Maybe that was flooded 4,000 years ago when we started creation, but uh, the the leaf had been there forever. But as you just explained, it goes back to Adam and Eve, and it's still only 6,000. Yeah. Georgina, thank you so much for calling in, and uh, no question uh, too hard or too simple. Uh, don't be worried about whether your question might be, you know, uh, this is a strange question to ask. Well, why don't you take the opportunity? 1-800-316-316. Let's see if we can take another call. Bill is in Victoria. Hey, Bill, welcome along. Oh, g'day, 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 Neil and uh, Tess. It's just a, just a, a general question. Um, I'm not sure, but I've heard that evolution, the, the definition of evolution is supposed to be nonsensical, forced, adaptation for survival. Now, going on that basis, I mean, looking at, say, the simplest organism, I'm a little bit naive, but the simplest organism is an amoeba, that type of thing. But at no stage do I see any part of creation being nonsensical. It seems to have a a wise being behind everything that's been that exists. Can you make some comments on that, please? Taz, thoughts for uh, Bill? Uh, yes, Bill. I, I think that's uh, absolutely correct, that this creation, uh, it's got amazing design, that the different creatures fit ex- uh, exactly what they need to do, like the different animals, the plants, and the amoebas, and, the, and uh, those sorts of things. And the idea that these things could come about by natural processes just uh, come together without intelligent uh, design and forethought and creation, uh, it doesn't make sense. And And so I think you're spot on there. Bill, thank you so much for your call. And before we do take another call, this thought of order from chaos, uh, the designer in control, uh, if everything is simply random, there is no order at all that can, uh, by chance, come together. Any thought from you around that, Taz? Yeah, well, the... Uh, the, uh, Richard Dawkins, the atheist, famous atheist, once wrote a book called um, The Blind Watchmaker. <clears throat> and the idea that he was putting forward is that evolution, evolution, natural selection, uh, adaptation, natural selection, uh, is, is what actually creates design, apparent design, by random processes. And uh, in actual fact, it seems that the that the evolution, the so-called variation and natural selection that goes on is actually a design feature, just like we have in our cars and radios and and uh, and in our you know TVs and all that. They, they, they've got 
things which are designed in them so that we can vary them, so that they can adapt to the different ways we want them. And so it seems that God did the same thing. He he created these features which are designed themselves to allow for variation and adaptation to different parts of the earth. Let's take another call and one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. If you have a question for Taz Walker today, let's take a call from Russell in Melbourne. Hey, Russell, welcome along. Hello, how are you? Well, what um, I heard years ago, which I go on the Bible biblically, a bishop checked, uh, went back through the genealogies in the Bible, and he worked it out that it is roughly six thousand years old in the Bible, on the genealogies. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Russell. This is Taz here. And um, that's... uh, These days, there's a little bit of uh, people that sort of would make slight modifications to that, but what he worked out, uh, we still think is pretty pretty reasonable. About 6,000 years going back to Adam and Eve, and then about 4,500 years to the flood. And I always say that's the only way that you can know the age of things is uh, by historical method. People who were there, God was there at the beginning. He created it. He saw it. He talked with Adam and Eve in the garden. They were there. They saw it. And so it's a sort of, you could say, like a historical method. And I sometimes... um, you know, talk to kids in when I'm doing his talk. I'll, I'll point to a kid and say, uh, "How old are you, Sonny?" And he'll say, uh, "I'm nine years of nine years." And so, how do you know that? And it's so interesting to sort of until he could figure out that it was because his mother was there and and she saw it and they wrote it in a in a uh, certificate and that sort of thing. So that's how we know the age, and it's the only reliable way. Russell, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316. When we think of uh, evidence for the flood, and uh, there's plenty of other conversations we've had on 2020 about that too, and there might be some more you want to add into that conversation today, Taz. But somehow or other, if you don't understand that there is evidence for the Genesis history, uh, then you really feel as though you have to reinterpret the Bible around your uh, you know, scientific analysis that might be coming from your high school teachers or your professors. Uh, that's the wrong way around, isn't it? You somehow or other, as a Christian believer, uh, you need to start with the Bible. That's, exact, that's right. That's exactly right. And I think that you know, it's often portrayed as science versus faith. You know, you've got faith. Faith is no evidence for faith, but science, it's based on evidence. And I think that is a a wrong way of comparing things. And uh, you could say it's sort of a little bit biased towards, you know, giving this so-called scientific thing, you know, credence. It's actually not science versus faith. It's two sciences. And these two sciences are actually based on two different faiths. So it's faith versus faith. So that it's the faith in naturalism that there is no God, that everything made itself by natural processes, and that leads to you know, the evolutionary story over millions of years. So that's one, and they call the evolutionary story science, but it's actually based on faith. The other is the, 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 the belief, that the, the, um, the faith that the Bible is, is giving us real history, and so based on that belief of the God who was there, uh, we, d- we, we come up with a lot, of, a lot of the similarities, but it's a young, a young earth. 
And so it's a, a different history. It's a history that's based on, uh, you know, something 6,000 years since the creation. So it's not science versus faith. It's faith in naturalism versus faith in the God of the Bible. Taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's take another call. Cindy is in Benalla. Hello, Cindy. Welcome along. Hello. I've just got inside from busy cleaning up the cages for the, all the animals I've got. I've got a, I've got a bit of a zoo in the backyard. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. <laughs> as well as a gigantic front yard and backyard garden, and I've got a messy house I've got to clean. So, yeah, I'm just coming inside. So <laughs> I don't know fabulous. if anyone's asked it before, but... Um, my, um, my sister got a puppy, and he's got dew claws on the back feet. So I asked Google, because Google's the go-to, uh, and as well as asking the vet. I, Google says um, it's um, there for climbing trees. <laughs> Sorry, your puppy. Oh, okay. Yep. okay. Yeah, it, I thought that is such a lie. <laughs> Dogs have never, never even had the desire to climb trees. The, uh, if so anything, it'd be again? hanging on to... It, it, uh, dew claws on the back feet, the, both D, back legs. D, the dew claws, and, and it's a normal puppy. W, an extra thumb. Okay. All right, Cindy, uh, let's okay. uh, let's hear from Taz. Taz, what are your I thoughts? I mean, uh, puppies <laughs> climbing trees. Uh, it wouldn't be for puppies climbing climbing trees if it's just a, a normal dog, but which has got some sort of a um, uh, like a, an abnormality, something that's different about its feet. Well, that's often caused by some sort of genetic defect, uh, some sort of genetic mutation which occurs. And there's a lot of interesting things that happens. Like, you know, uh, you get dogs that, uh, that, that are unable to make fur because of a genetic defect. And so, um, so they, they, often when they're closely bred and brothers and sisters... Yeah, and dogs, I thought it was I mean, unbred. She wouldn't have it. <laughs> then Google yeah. told me it was a climbing trees. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think Google's making up a story there, and so everything's everything's explained by evolution. But you, you okay, this, uh, Cindy? Like a... Can your puppy climb a tree? <laughs> no, no, never had the desire to. I don't know. I've watched hundreds of um, David Attenborough shows, and there's never been one dog <laughs> okay. climbing trees. Hey, well, thank <laughs> if you. Anything, it would be for hanging on to prey. If anything, uh -huh. that'd be make more sense. Okay, well, Cindy, <laughs> thanks so much for your call. One eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen, and let's take another call. Karen is in Slacks Creek in Queensland. Hello, Karen. Welcome. Hi. I uh, look. I've just got three three points I want to ask about. I've got a friend. Every time I speak Jesus, he speaks his stuff. That there are rocks on the planet that came from outer space. How do we know that? I mean, meteorites would have been. But he claims too that there were that the giants came to Earth from another planet. He also talks about, um, which you can maybe describe, you know, your friend, and that's um, pyramids under the ocean. What's that about? And he reckons it's yeah, yeah. I think we might need to tackle one at a time because we're short on time. Sure. Uh, let's stay with yeah, the asteroids one. Can we make that the, the asteroids one is the most important one? Let's stay with that for a few moments. Uh, uh, thoughts here, Taz, for Karen? Oh, yes, well, we do know, we do have uh, lots of uh, impact craters around the world, uh, and there's quite a lot in Australia. So there's information that, that uh, th things have struck the Earth. And it would have been since the flood, so um, maybe late in the flood and since the flood. But also, we, there was a report recently about a, um, uh, 
a lady had a meteorite come through a roof and, and landed on a bed. And we see we see these uh, shooting stars coming into the earth uh, every now and then, like uh, we're in, in the sky. And so that's another example of these things coming from outer space. And uh, and people have been able to find them, pick them up, and, and identify uh, what meteorites look like. So that's how we know about meteorites. And uh, uh, but during the flood, there was a, seems like there was a, a lot of very large uh, meteorites went through the solar system, and they left left scars on the moon. You, you know, the man on the moon that uh, looks like a man. So some of those those are due to impacts uh, craters on the moon. And uh, Karen, we've had some earlier conversations on this program about uh, meteorites and uh, and whether or not life from outer space arrived on planet Earth. Uh, you might need to Google those and you might even be able to find some detail on the creation.com website too surrounding uh, yeah. those sorts of issues. Hey, I haven't got Indeed. any time to hear your other questions and uh, that might have been fascinating to talk about pyramids under the ocean unless you've got a quick thought on that at all, Taz. Uh, there is evidence that uh, the sea level has risen and that there are structures under the ocean which uh, which are close to the land, uh, but, I, but I'm not too sure of these exact pyramids that are you've spoken about. I'd have to Google that and find out which ones uh, Karen is uh, talking about. But, yeah, the sea level's risen and there are structures under the ocean close to the land. And, Karen, you might want to send a note to Taz Walker and uh, perhaps he can point you in the right direction there. Karen from Slacks Creek, thank you so much for your call. And time's run out. And I just want to let listeners know uh, there is a way you can find more detail and uh, there's only so much depth you can go into in a short conversation like this, but you can go to creation.com and they've got a library in their uh, archives there of something like 13,000 articles, all easily searchable from the very front page of the creation.com website. Uh, that's no doubt a tremendous resource, Taz. Do you find that people are, are accessing that and utilising the good value of, that you've got in all of those articles? Yes, indeed. That's that's right, Neil. And, and that's why we put them up, uh, because... You know, people face this issue, whether they're in uh, preschool, whether in, in primary school, uh, whether they're at, you know, uh, high school or university, people are getting these questions which are presented to them by their teachers and in the syllabus. And so that's why we put it up. And people have to do assignments on this stuff and answer questions. And so uh, we provide simple and uh, more in-depth articles on all these sorts of things to help people navigate through. And that's the key, isn't it? Uh, some of those articles are simple to understand for the not-so-scientifically-minded, uh, and then some of those are very technical for those who are in those uh, upper echelons of understanding things uh, intellectually in the science context. Uh, Dr. Taz Walker has been our guest this hour at creation.com, and I've got another question quickly for you, Taz, because... A lot of people remember the Creation magazine. You can still get a hold of Creation magazine and other ways to connect with uh, with Creation. Um, what's some of those ways uh, for listeners? Well, thank you, Neil. One of the one of the uh, simplest ways would be to go to creation dot com and you can get connected via the email newsletter, which is very very helpful. It comes out every couple of weeks and provides a digest of what's been happening in the news, what's current. The other thing is Creation Magazine, which you can also connect with 
throughcreation.com comes out every every three months or so and that's that's a really powerful resource in the family and uh kids who read that that they they have become really immu- uh, inoculated against these evolutionary ideas and uh, that's a very very powerful way of strengthening your family so there'd be the two main issues is the newsletter and the magazine but there's also a store on creation.com which you can uh, people can get in, more in-depth information as well creation.com and dr taz walker researcher writer and speaker with creation ministries international and no doubt uh, taz uh, all of your speakers are busy as it is, but there might be churches want to book a speaker from Creation uh, Ministries International too. So creation.com. Taz, thanks so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. Yes, and it all comes back to the Lord, doesn't it? The fact, the fact that Jesus Christ is the creator, all things by him and for him, and that uh, we, we belong to him, we serve him. Uh, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we are, and that gives us... uh, That's why we were made, right at the beginning. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.